0: Let's pray. Father, give us humble minds and humble hearts as we approach you in prayer, recognizing the grandeur of your supremacy and the greatness of your glory and the unimaginable reality of your presence, which ought to humble us and give us a true perspective on our nature on our nature without you, which is totally depraved and wicked and evil and hates you and loves evil and loves sin and deserves death. And with a proper understanding of your glory and grandeur and a proper understanding of our total worthlessness, um... There is a gap between us that is unfixable with our own power. But you have fixed it by making Christ the bridge and his death and resurrection the means by which you can take this worthless, evil, wicked, totally depraved sinner and make us right with you and to make us like you, and like Christ. So we ask that today would be a continuation of that. Help us to walk in the newness of life that you have given us. Help us to understand the power of your resurrection and what a life of resurrected power looks like. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So this series on the appearing of Christ, like I said, is not in order um, and that is intentional because um, then we can understand how God reveals himself not in a linear timeline, but in a spiritually meaningful way that is different. We can see things a little differently by not putting it in a linear timeline. If we were going to talk about the appearing of Christ in more of a linear expression, it would be like God creates the world, shows up in the Old Testament, Christophanies and Theophanies. So Christophanies are Old Testament appearances of the Son of God. Um, Theophanies are Old Testament appearances of the Father. Um, And we also see the Holy Spirit at work on earth and in people in the Old Testament. So God, Christ, ultimately shows up in the Old Testament. And then you get to the virgin birth in the New Testament. Jesus is born, and then Jesus dies, and then Jesus appears again. Uh, After his death, when he resurrects, and then he ascends to heaven, and then he promises what? He'll appear again. So we have several appearings, or ideas of him appearing, and that would be the kind of linear timeline, but we're kind of working all over the place. There isn't really um, any rhyme or reason to the order that we're moving in, but today we're going to talk about the resurrection of Jesus and next week, we're going to talk about the birth of Jesus. So, go, that's a little out of order. doesn't he have to be born before he rises. But here's the cool thing we all already know the whole story. So, let's just jump ahead and know that he's resurrected from the grave and work from there. Now, next week, we'll dive into his appearing in his birth. But today, we're going to talk about him coming back to life, him appearing back to life, and what that means to us as believers. So, in Acts 13, which is our text for today, Paul is in Antioch, and he is asked by the people to deliver a sermon. And he gives them one of the best sermons recorded in Scripture, which you could summarize Paul's sermon here as just a gospel presentation. He's preaching the gospel to these people. Now, in the middle of his sermon, he very briefly shares the trial and the death of Jesus in only two sentences. So he covers a massive, massive and massively important portion of the Gospels, which is Jesus being tried, Jesus' is suffering, Jesus walking to, the, to Golgotha, Jesus on the cross, and all those experiences, and everything that leads up to his resurrection. So there's a lot of Gospel information that Paul just summarizes in two short sentences and doesn't share much about it. Um, He doesn't, he doesn't emphasize the unfair trial of Jesus like Peter does in Acts chapter two when he preaches and he doesn't emphasize the details of horror that Jesus endured on the cross, but rather Paul's objective was to emphasize in this sermon in Acts 13 that Jesus rose from the grave and why that is theologically important and what that means to your daily Christian life. So in Acts 13, verses 28 through 29, and we'll be in verses 28 through 37, but in the first two verses, 28 through 29, we find this brief rendition of the trial and the death of Jesus. And Paul says, and they found him and they found in him no guilt worthy of death. I'm sorry. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. So trial, death of Jesus wrapped up in two short sentences, not a lot of details. And you notice that Paul says that Jesus was not guilty, yet they killed him anyway. Unfair. How could God allow such a thing? But then Paul immediately says this was them carrying out all that was written of him. Meaning the unfair and unjust death of Christ was already recorded long before it happened. And if you want to learn more about that, um, you can read Isaiah 53 or just go back to last December's Christmas series on Isaiah 53 where we covered this. Where Isaiah prophesies about the suffering of Jesus. His death is the fulfillment of Isaiah 53, of that text. And many other texts in the Old Testament. Now that is important That we see that. That Paul is declaring that they did something that scripture said was going to happen. And even though all of us would recognize this is unfair that he's not guilty, they know he's not guilty. They can't find him guilty of anything. And yet they kill him. And Paul says the reason is because they're fulfilling what was prophesied about him by God before. Paul noting that in his sermon is important. Because what Paul is about to say concerning the resurrection of Jesus is also fulfilled in Old Testament texts or a fulfillment of Old Testament texts, except on this issue of the resurrection, Paul, unlike he does with the death of Jesus, Paul will elaborate and address those Old Testament texts as being fulfilled in Christ. So. Paul kind of warms us up talking about the death of Jesus, doesn't give a lot of details and says this is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And now he's going to make an argument for the resurrection, except he is going to address those Old Testament texts and show us how Christ fulfills those prophecies. So in verses 30 through 31, Paul says, so at the end of 29, he says, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Verse 30, but God raised him from the dead. Now, if you just stop there, like, if I, when I say that in church on a Sunday morning in this setting just now, nobody's going, oh, what? He's alive? Like, I didn't know that. Like, you guys are here because you already know that, I assume. And if you told that to an unbeliever in this world, they're probably not going to be surprised by that because they've probably heard it. It's, I mean, it's, it's kind of worldwide well-known and now there's plenty of people groups in the world that don't even haven't even heard of jesus so they wouldn't know but for the most part everyone knows jesus died and rose from the grave or at least even non-believers would say well that's the christian claim they've heard of it but like this is new when paul is saying this this is like within like 10 to 15 years of jesus maybe 10 years of, of jesus just having rose from the grave and so like He's spreading the gospel to people in the places that haven't heard these things. And he's saying, they unfairly killed Jesus. And then he says, but God raised him from the dead. So we kind of read past that, like, like, yeah, we know that. But to the Jews listening to Paul, they're probably like, whoa, hold on a second, what? He rose from the, the dead? God raised him from death? That's a, that's a pretty bold statement, dude. Like... If you told me, like I've had people tell me this, um, say things like, yeah, I was in church and this guy died in the middle of service and then we resurrected him from death back to life. And I'm like, "Mm, prove it. (laughs) Like instantly I'm skeptical, right? And I believe in resurrection from the dead, which is Paul's entire argument in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul's arguing to the Corinthians that before he argues in 1 Corinthians 15 for the resurrection of Jesus, first he argues for the idea of resurrection. He just argues for the possibility that someone who's dead can be brought back to life. That's his argument. Before he argues for Christ being resurrected. And so I believe, Paul, that human beings can be resurrected to life. I'm not gonna dive into that whole Um, rabbit hole of what that means, but I believe that, and I'm still skeptical if you tell me you saw someone raised from the dead or you raised somebody from the dead, because that's so significant, and so you can understand the Jews are not really buying this, and so Paul has to offer a defense, and and I'll say this uh, as just a side note. If you want to share the gospel with somebody and they want evidence or what they would call proof uh, that Jesus is who he says he is, that God is who he says he is, all the evidence rests in the resurrection. If you can provide overwhelming evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, you have accomplished all the necessary evidence. Because if the resurrection is true, then Jesus is who he says he is. Isaiah 53 says that the resurrection of Jesus is God's validating the gospel. It's God's approval on everything that took place. And, and so the resurrection of Christ is the, is the proof or the evidence of the gospel truth, which makes Jesus real, which makes Jesus God, which makes Jesus claims real, which makes God real, which makes the gospel real, which makes the Bible real, which makes – so it all comes from the resurrection. So I usually say there's two things you want to provide evidence for if you're doing more of an apologetic approach with somebody and trying to share the gospel with them or truth with them and they have got questions and they're skeptical and they want proofs and evidences. um, Validate the resurrection and validate the word of God. If you can show evidence that the word of God is what it says it is, well, that's going to come from understanding that the resurrection is what the Bible says it is. So that's just a side note, but... This idea of the resurrection of Christ, that he's dead, gone, and then he just appears from death back to life and looks different and is in his resurrection body. So when he rises from the grave, he's in his eternal body. The body he wore when he came out of that tomb is the body he's in right now and will be in forever. He's the first fruits, as scripture calls him. He's the one, he's the first piece of fruit to bloom on the tree, to get the resurrection body, to get that eternal state. I mean, Jesus resurrected Lazarus from death <clears throat> and I, I, always, I always think about this with Lazarus. I'm like, that dude was dead and then Jesus raises him to life and he's like, oh, I gotta do this again? <laughs> like, I gotta come back to life and then I'm gonna have to die again? And that couldn't have been Lazarus' attitude because what, what did Lazarus see when he, when he came back to life? What was the first thing he saw? Jesus. So there's no displeasure in Lazarus. But the point is that everybody in scripture who's resurrected from the dead eventually had to die again. Right? And so <clears throat> Jesus is the first fruit of the resurrection first fruit of life he's the first one to resurrect to his eternal state and because he's done that we now also share in that so he says in verse 30 through 31 but god raised him from the dead and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from galilee to jerusalem who are now his witnesses to the people so now paul's shifted from making an argument for the resurrection of christ and we know this truth of jesus resurrection is essential to our salvation because paul says in 1 Corinthians fifteen seventeen, for if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Meaning if Jesus did not resurrect, then there is no truth, no salvation, no gospel, no faith, no eternal life, and ultimately no God. And this is all a hoax. <clears throat> now to argue his point, Paul takes us to Old Testament texts about Christ and about David and he talks about Christ, Old Testament texts about prophet Old Testament prophecies about Christ and his resurrection that were prophesied 1000 years before Jesus was born. So in verses 32 through 35, Paul makes his claims. He says, "We bring you the good news." So, what is good news? If you could take the words good news and turn it into a different word, what would we call that word? Gospel, right? The gospel is good news. So what Paul's really saying is, and we bring to you the gospel. And what is the gospel? What God promised to the fathers. So what Paul's about to say is that what God promised to the fathers in the past, and the father he's going to refer to specifically is David. What God promised to the fathers in the past is the gospel. Which means the things that God said to David in the references that Paul's going to pull out here are not just about David. They're about Christ because it's the good news. It's the gospel that he's telling us about. So he says, and we bring to you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by. So the fulfillment of those Old Testament prophecies is done in this by raising Jesus So the resurrection of Jesus validates and fulfills these Old Testament promises. As also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another Psalm, you will not let your holy ones see corruption. Now, if you're in our Wednesday night study in 1 Samuel, this is going to connect some dots for you. Probably some dots we've already connected or you're already aware of. And it's going to emphasize one of the points that we keep addressing in that Wednesday study, which is that David is a type of Christ. A picture of God's chosen and anointed one to lead and love his people. So this idea of a type, a biblical type, is a theological word. So type is a theological word we use to describe symbolism. Symbolism. An Old Testament type is a symbol of something more fully realized in the New Testament. And that Old Testament type usually goes through earthly experiences that have eternal realizations in Christ. Making those Old Testament types great parables or stories that help us understand the spiritual truths of Jesus. So Paul's argument for the resurrection of Jesus is that he fulfills promises that God made to David. Because David's the one that Paul is referring to in these texts. It's 1 Samuel 13 uh, 14. Paul brought up David earlier in texts that we haven't even addressed yet, or didn't address, but we're earlier in the sermon, David brings out in verse uh, 22, I have found David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this Man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised, which we just sang about. And O come, O come, Emmanuel, Oh offspring of, or how was one the words, were, of Jesse, free, like he's talking about Christ because Jesse is David's father, and it's a reference to the connection between Christ and David, between Jesus and David. So Paul's entire argument here is surrounding David specifically, and God made a promise, to King Saul. So for those of you who don't know, King Saul is the first king of Israel. David come. David is the second king of Israel. David is God's, God anoints Saul to be king. And then he anoints David to be king. God takes his spirit from Saul, gives his spirit to David, gives Saul an evil spirit, blesses David. And he says that, and there's a distinction between Saul and David and that the people wanted a king and God gave them a tall and handsome king. Saul, but he wasn't a godly man. And this is the promise that God gives to Saul in 1 Samuel 13, 14. He says, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The reason is, is because Saul sinned against God, all right? He was supposed to do a certain thing, which was obey what Samuel told him to do, but he didn't listen to Samuel. He didn't wait for Samuel. He didn't do it God's way. He just rushed into it and did it his own way. And and Samuel came to him and said, This, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. The Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. And right there, you can see the glimpse of Christ being coming out in this promise. He's talking about David. Samuel's telling Saul, you're not going to be the king anymore. David's going to be the king. Now, Samuel doesn't know his name's David. And Saul doesn't know his name's David. Only God knows David. Because at this point, Samuel hasn't gone to Jesse, David's father, and looked for the next king. And so so he doesn't know who this man is. But all he knows is, all Samuel knows is that God is saying, I'm going to pick the next king. And this king, unlike the first king, who is not a good representation of me, the second king that I'm going to pick is going to be a beautiful representation of me. Because he's going to be a man after my heart. A man who has a heart that desires God. And God does this on purpose. He allows Israel, he ordains Israel to desire to have a king. And God said, you don't need a king. I'm your king. And they're like, well, we don't care. We want a king. We want a king because we want to be like the other nations. And we want a king to lead us into battle so we can be just like everyone else. And God was like, you're not like everyone else. That's the point. You don't get an earthly king. You have, a, you have God as your king. God of the universe. You don't need a king and they're like well we want one anyways and god says samuel fine give them what they want and first samuel 8 he gives the people what they want and they get a king and god gives them king saul and god gives king saul his spirit and saul still sins against god and still disobeys god and still rebels against god and still does constant evil and God ordains Saul to be the first king to show the people, this is what you asked for. You wanted an earthly king, this is what you get. You wanted a human king, this is what you get. But God also is orchestrating this intentionally to provide for us a picture of what's going to happen, a reality of what is going to take place. There is going to be a human king who rules God's people one day. So God does ordain Saul to become king, the people to want a king so that it could be a picture of what will be in Christ, a human who is not just human, but also God in Jesus, who will be the king of God's people. And so God ordains for Saul to be this king, and it doesn't go well. And Saul's a terrible example of a godly leader and a king of Israel. And God says, now that you guys have seen what it's like to have a bad king, let me show you what my king looks like. And then not just my king for Israel, 1000 BC, but my king forever. I want to show you what the Messiah will be like in David. So I'm going to make David like me. I'm going to make David love me. I'm going to make David, I'm going to give David a heart that goes after me. David's going to be a man. He's going to make mistakes. He's not going to be a perfect representation of Christ, but he's going to be an anointed and chosen one to rule, lead, and love my people just like the future Messiah will be. And so God paints David as like the image of what Christ will be, the type of what Christ will be. And so we get a lot of back and forth in Old Testament, New Testament between David and Jesus. And not only that, but then Jesus comes from David's physical, literal line. Now God makes promises to David and those promises are meant to be Those promises are meant to be fulfilled not wholly in the lifetime of David uh, or to be fulfilled in this, on this earth necessarily, but ultimately these promises that God makes to David, they have earthly fulfillment, but they're meant to be fulfilled through Christ. And, and David's the one who gets to fulfill them in some earthly sense because he's the type of Christ. So now God does usually fulfill some of these prophecies on this earth through the type And he does this with David. So like God makes a promise to David. And and when he makes David a promise, he's going to fulfill that promise in some earthly way. But then that promise also has eternal ramifications. There's a a greater fulfillment of that promise that isn't really fulfilled until Christ fulfills it. Which we find in 1 Corinthians one twenty one. I think it's one twenty one where he says, all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. Their yes in him. And so Christ fulfills all these promises. And so we know that David gets some fulfillment from these promises in his lifetime. We see this in our Acts 13 text, verse 36. For David, after he served the purpose of God in his own generation. So David did his part in his lifetime, fulfilling whatever God had for him to fulfill according to whatever promises God made for him. He fulfilled it in his own generation. And then what? He fell asleep and was laid with his father's and saw corruption. Now that's a key word right there, saw corruption, because this is the, the premise for Paul's argument for Christ. So we see that David served God's purposes on earth in his lifetime, but Paul's argument is that there was a greater purpose to David, which was to serve as a picture of what Christ would do. And Paul just said <clears throat> that David saw corruption, meaning David died and stayed dead, facing physical death and physical decay. He was corrupted. And the, the idea of corruption there is this concept that death corrupts life, right? And so David's life is corrupted by death, which makes David just like everyone else. And it also presents a problem to the promises of God, because the promises that God gives David have to do with no corruption, but David becomes corrupt. Corrupted, meaning dead, not morally corrupted, not spiritually corrupted, physically corrupted with death. One verse earlier in verse 35, Paul quotes Psalm 1610 and says, you will not let your holy one see corruption. So he's talking. These are prophecies about David. And then Paul says, but David saw corruption but then but then Paul quotes in verse 35 Psalm 16:10 and says you'll not let your holy one see corruption. So the Jews listening to Paul would have argued that this psalm was about David, but Paul argues that David did see corruption, therefore must not be fulfilled by David because David saw corruption and this text says your holy one won't see corruption. Holy one means anointed one, which they would have thought of was David. And Paul's saying, no, no, David was the anointed one, and he was meant to be a picture of Christ, the truly anointed one, and who will not see corruption. And his holy one who does not see corruption, according to verse 34, is the same person who Paul says that God gives the holy and sure blessings of David. So the one who's the holy one who does not see corruption is also the one who gets the holy and sure blessings of David. So who gets the holy and sure blessings of David? Uh, I don't know. David? Yeah, doesn't that make sense? That's what the Jews were thinking. Well, the holy and sure blessings of David belong to David. And sure, Jewish scholars would have been like, well, they belong to also the Messiah maybe, but they don't believe Jesus is the Messiah. And Paul's argument is, well, you don't believe Jesus is the Messiah, but recognize this, the promises that are made to David, if they're about the coming Messiah, well, that coming Messiah can't see corruption. David saw corruption, so it can't be about David. So it has to be about someone who hasn't seen corruption. who hasn't seen corruption? And Paul's argument is Jesus, because he's alive. So what are the holy and sure blessings of David? Well, we find them in second, well, there's more than one, but they all kind of coalesce into one maybe big idea. And I think 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 14, is a good general summarization of of most of, a lot of the promises that God makes to David or about Christ through David. And he says in 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 14, <clears throat> when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, this is, he's talking to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Solomon, who is David's son, took over the kingship after David. And Solomon built the first temple, just as God just told David in this text that the offspring of David will build a house for God's name. So Solomon does fulfill prophecy from God to David, but only partially. So people, even people today, scholars today would, some scholars, some Bible people would tell you that this is not about Christ. This is about Solomon. I mean, think about it. If it's about Solomon, um, you're going to die, David. I'll raise up offspring after you. Solomon's his offspring. He'll come from your body. Solomon came from him. I will establish his kingdom. Solomon gets a kingdom established. He shall build a house for my name. Solomon builds the temple. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Whoa, what? Is Solomon alive? Is Solomon on a throne in Israel right now? No. Is anybody on a throne in Israel for the Jews right now in the temple? No. No. And then he says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Solomon fulfills that too. So we got a fulfillment problem if this is Solomon. So Solomon fulfills much of this in a lesser sense in this earth. He fulfills this prophecy in a minor way. But there is one element to this prophecy that Solomon cannot fulfill. When God says about the future offspring, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. All the other elements of that promise, Solomon fulfills to some earthly extent but this one can't be fulfilled by solomon or by any jewish king that or that comes after solomon every element of this prophecy cannot be fulfilled by solomon only part of it but the entirety of this prophecy can and is fulfilled in jesus matthew 1 tells us that jesus came from the line of david so jesus is the offspring of david that part fulfilled Jesus does build God a house, just like Solomon built a physical house for God called the temple. Jesus built a spiritual and eternal house or family for God called the church, fulfilled. And Jesus repeats all throughout the gospels that he is the son of God and that God the father is his father, fulfilled. Solomon's in this this last part of the prophecy, only Jesus can fulfill and Solomon can't. Solomon's reign did not last forever, so his throne is not established forever. But a Jew would argue that the throne over Israel, regardless of who occupies it, will last forever, that there will always be a throne for Israel at some point going on in the future forever. They're always looking forward to that promise getting fulfilled. And what Paul says is, it's already done. And that's his argument with the Jews all the time. What are you looking for? He's here. He died. He rose from the grave. He's alive. He sees no corruption, just like scripture says. He'll see no corruption. And he's the king. His throne is eternal, not an earthly throne like you're looking for on earth. I mean, even Jesus' disciples couldn't get that well. He was with them. He's walking on earth with his disciples for three years. And they're like, so when are we going to take over the kingdom? And Jesus is like, you still don't get it. And he hides truth from them you know he doesn't tell them the whole story all at once he lets it out in pieces and his own time according to the will of the father to reveal to them over time what his plan is and it's not until after jesus resurrection that the apostles finally get it that oh his kingdom is eternal not Israel, the physical land that we're standing on. That's not what the promise is about. It's about a future eternity in the presence of God. In a new Jerusalem. On a new earth. Re, not recreated, but created new. Where we will be new and he is in his new resurrection body. We'll get new resurrection bodies. We'll be on a new earth in what is called the new Jerusalem. Living in the new... I don't know what we'll live in. Houses? I don't know. Uh, wearing what clothes? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what it's going to be like up there, but everything's going to be new. I know that. And the the, the apostles themselves don't get it until they receive the Spirit. And so the problem with this idea that the throne of Israel that's promised to David to last forever, to be established forever, for that to go on forever in this life, the problem is that once Jesus dies. And resurrects and ascends to heaven. Then the apostles start going out and preaching the gospel. Around the time of Acts itself, and just after Acts ultimately, the temple in Jerusalem is destroyed by the Romans. And like all the hopes of the future throne in the temple at the kingdom of Israel to be occupied by a king for for the Jews forever, it just goes away. And hasn't been reestablished since. And there'll be no kingdom for Israel until God establishes an eternal kingdom for Israel. Now, there might be some remnant realization of that in the future, but ultimately, It's a beautiful thing. I mean, for the Jews, from an earthly perspective, it's a terrible thing that Jewish people were massacred and that, and that, uh, the, the, their city was destroyed and that Jerusalem was invaded, that the Romans destroyed the temple, that, that, all that happened. That's a terrible, terrible thing that happened. So, like, from a human to human earthly perspective, that's, that's really, that's rough, right? But it was necessary. Because we needed the temple to go away. Because the new temple is right here. And that's what Paul says to the Corinthians. You are now the temple of God. God does no longer house himself in a tabernacle, wandering the desert with the Israelites with Moses. God no longer dwells in the temple Uh, behind the ark and in the Holy of Holies where only certain people who are anointed a certain way can access God. God is now living in a new temple called the church. That's the new house, right? That's the promise that God made to David that your offspring will build me a house. What is the new house that God dwells in? Not the temple that Solomon built, but the temple that Christ built, the church, the body of Christ, So the throne, had, the throne going away, the, 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 the temple being destroyed in 70 AD, just 40 years after Jesus, actually serves the gospel very well. And God makes a promise to David that his throne will last forever. It cannot be fulfilled in, in because the Jews would argue, well, if it's not Solomon, then there will always be a subsequent king in Solomon. on the throne for Israel forever and that doesn't happen, that hasn't happened, that isn't fulfilled in an earthly sense and Paul's argument is it's fulfilled in Christ and Paul's saying this while the temple still stands. That's a lot of faith. So to the Jew who's listening to Paul, they would argue that the promise was made to David and Paul's arguing that the promise of eternal kingship was about Jesus and Paul's evidence for that fact Is that God also said that his holy one, whom they thought was David, will not see corruption. And Paul says that in the resurrection of Jesus, he escapes corruption to rise to eternal life. Verse 37. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. So the the Old Testament promise is to David that my holy one will not see corruption. And that same Holy One who doesn't see corruption also gets the sure blessings of David. Well, it can't be David because Paul says David sees corruption. Who doesn't see corruption? Christ, which means the promises are about Christ and for Christ and, and, and to Christ, ultimately, and, and to us, the church. And so we know that because of this truth, when we trust in Christ for our salvation, we are joined with him in his death in his death to sin, and in his resurrection to eternal life. And this is according to Romans 6, 1 through 5, which I'm about to read. Um, and before I read it, I just want to make a little side note so that you don't get distracted by something else in this text. This word baptism is used a, a few times. Uh, this is not a reference to physical ba- baptism in water. It's a, it's a spiritual baptism, a, Uh, A spiritual uniting with Christ, the idea of baptism, we're baptized into Christ in a spiritual sense has nothing to do with water, physical baptism. If it did, we would have a theological problem on our hands. So Romans six, one through five says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound by no means? How can we who died to sin still live in it? So Paul's logic and theology goes like this. If we're united to Christ by faith, then his death is applied to us. We get the benefits of his death. We die with Christ. Christ died in our sin and then rose from the grave to conquer our sin so that when we die with Christ, we don't die in sin, we die to sin. Major difference. Jesus dies in sin leaves sin in the grave, conquers death by rising from death, sin's only weapon, leaving death to stay dead and leaving sin to be wrapped up and chained by death. And he resurrects from death and from sin, new and perfect and righteous forever and shares that with us. And when we believe in him with faith, we too also die, but not dying in our sin like he did. But because he did, we die to sin. And because we are united to him by that death, we also are united to him in his resurrection. So if we die to sin in him, then we are automatically guaranteed, which Noah read for us this morning from Ephesians 1, the guaranteed inheritance of the promise that is guaranteed to us in the sealing of the Holy Spirit from Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, that we are united to him in death like his, then we are certainly united to him in a resurrection like his, meaning we are promised that eternal life. So, what is the application then of the appearing of Jesus's, the appearing of Jesus after his death? And Paul just told it to us in Romans six one. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Listen to this question. How can we, who died to sin, still live in it? That that is a tough question. Because that's a question of obedience. And I can tell you what I've learned in the last three years. When you talk about obedience, people scatter. Because they don't want to hear about it. They don't like it. I mean, it's, e- it's easy to sit and, you know, listen to someone talk about obedience in a general sense. No Christian is ever going to say we don't have to obey. We all know we have to obey. We should obey. But we also understand the biblical gospel truth that our salvation is not dependent on our obedience. That whether I obey or not isn't determined whether I go to heaven or not, which is true. But that has to be balanced with many other biblical texts that talk about the importance of obedience in the Christian life. That obedience is the fruit of salvation. The evidence that there is salvation. And then we're also commanded to pursue obedience and to kill sin and to hate sin and to love righteousness and to pursue God and all these other things. And so obedience is portrayed in scripture as massively important. And people don't mind listening to that concept of obedience as long as it's not about them. I mean, seriously, listen to conversations you have with Christians, maybe in a small group setting, maybe even one-on-one or maybe somewhere like a pastor at a pulpit or something. When you hear people talk about sin, it's usually things like, oh, I know I'm not perfect. I got a lot of sin in my life, too. Like no one says what the sins are. They just like to admit that they have sin and that they're sinners. Oh, we're all just sinners. It's like, well, that's true, but it's so vague and so general. And it makes us feel like it takes, it steals the meaning of obedience By generalizing sin and generalizing grace so vaguely that we can just say, hey, look at me, I'm humble because I admit I'm a sinner. Well, of course you know you're a sinner. If you're a Christian, everyone has had to admit they're a sinner. You can't get saved without awareness of your sin. So everybody who's saved understands that they're a sinner, but understanding in general the idea that you have sin isn't special or unique, or profound, or meaningful during your sanctification. During your sanctification. It's before you're saved when you go, oh, I'm a sinner. And then you get saved. And then you go, oh, now that I'm getting sanctified, now I have to actually take this general idea of I'm a sinner and start actually working on the actual real sins. Now I have to sit down and parse out my life. I have to look at myself and do what Paul commands in 1 Corinthians 11 and examine myself. Or as he says in another text, examine yourself to see if you're even in the faith. Meaning sit down with your life and pull it apart and say, where are the sins? What are they? How do I work these out? And that's what Paul means in Philippians two twelve and 13, where he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You work out your salvation. Work out that I'm a sinner, but redeemed by grace, and I'm being sanctified for righteousness. Work that out. Sit down with your sin. Pull back the scroll. Open the notes. Rip open your heart. Be honest with yourself. And maybe be honest with another Christian who you can confide in and say, I have actual, specific details about my sin that need work. And when a pastor tries to get people to think that way and do those things, they go, whoa, 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 whoa. I really am way more comfortable with just this general idea of I'm a sinner and just leave it at that. Because that, that's easy. That's what we call nominal Christianity, Christian in name only. And it's not Christianity. It's not healthy. It, it's not good for you. God is, that is not God's will for your life, I promise you. Instead, what the resurrection of Jesus affords us is, the, is, is this reality that if I sit down with my heart and mind and sin and i truly open up the pages of my life and i start examining my sinfulness and really start picking at myself and start saying all right god expose me show me where my sin is work on my sin work this out help me work this out in fear and trembling in reverence for your grace and for your and for your judgment that i get to escape by your grace pick me apart and give me Psalm 51 heart and attitude where I request that you break my bones spiritually, that you rip me open and restore me through this repentance as you expose my sin. I'm humbled by my sin and then you can sanctify me through those sins and help me work through those so I can be sanctified and become more mature and Christ-like as I grow. God will bless that. That will produce fruit. That will be righteousness. That will be good for you. That will feel good. But that is hard. That is really hard. People don't like to do that. I don't like to do that. And I'm preaching about it. You think I enjoy it? It hurts. It's hard. It's painful. And it's even harder when someone does it for you. When someone sits you down and has to say hard things to you, that's even harder. But that's what the Christian life has to be. Because that's what scripture tells us. That's the whole point and that's why Paul says, "How can we who died to sin still live in it?" He's not saying, "Be perfect." Be perfect now. Don't have any sin ever. What he's saying is, how can you just say, hey, uh, I'm just a sinner. And then that's it. That's the extent of your Christianity. I'm just a sinner redeemed by grace. Well, that's a true statement. But it's not good enough. That's what baby Christians say. Which is why Hebrews chapters 5, end of chapter 5 and chapter 6 talk about it's time to move on from the elementary principles of Jesus' death and resurrection. He's calling knowing that I'm a sinner saved by grace is elementary. Move on to deeper and better things, stronger doctrines, deeper disciplines, stronger and greater and more elaborate and grand theologies and truths about God and realities about our nature and actual sanctification processes in your life where you actually start, stop saying, eh, Jesus died for my sins, rose from the grave, and I'm saved. I'm going to heaven no matter what happens. So it doesn't matter how I live my life. And the gospel says it does matter how you live your life because Jesus said, if you're my disciple, then prove it. So it does matter how we live our life. It does matter that we work on sanctification. It's not okay just to be like, oh, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Hebrews 6 says that's elementary time to grow up and start examining ourselves and start exposing our hearts and minds and sit down with God. That's the best place to start. You, God, in a room alone. And you just say, all right, God, open me up. I know, God, that there are more things than I can handle right now There are more problems and sins in my life than I could even handle if you expose them all to me. So, in your infinite wisdom, God, give me what you want to give me today. What is today's thing? What do I need to work on right now? And just be honest with him. The thing is, we pray to God... And we lie to him. We really do. We're like, we don't talk about things to God that we don't really want to talk about because we don't want to admit to God that we're thinking about it. And if we think about it with God, then we're like exposing it to God. And then God will be like, hey, hey I saw you think about that. Let's deal with it. And you're like, oh, well, I do not think about that. I don't want to deal with that. And we're like, God doesn't know you're playing that game with him. He literally is ordained through his sovereignty that you think about it. Why do we pretend like he's not, like, like he doesn't know what's going on in our, Why do we not give, why are we not perfectly honest with him? I don't mean perfect in a moral sense, but I mean fully honest with him when we pray. Who are we tricking? Ourselves. So... This is why, and this is the power of the resurrection of Christ. And this is, in, in Romans 6, Paul's talking about the resurrection of Jesus. And he's saying, ultimately what he's getting at is, what is the fruit? What is the benefit? What is the point of the resurrection of Christ? It gives us life. And that life that we have in Christ is real. And that real life is a holy and righteous one, which we have in us. And it's it's. it's it's also living with the sinful flesh that exists too. And so now with the holy and righteous resurrected life of Christ in us, that life can look at the flesh and go, you're dead to me. I'm gonna crush you, flesh. And that's what Galatians 5, the end of Galatians 5 is all about, is do not gratify the desires of the flesh and you will gratify the desires of the spirit. You have the life of Christ alive in you and you have this Dead flesh just stuck to you like like molasses, I, like a zombie with its flesh just falling off of the bones, and it's disgusting, and it and it's it's dead, but it's still moving like a zombie, and it's operating, it's trying to bite you, and it's trying to get you infected, and it wants to kill you. And the spirit of Christ in you is like, that's a dead body. And we're like, when we sin, we're essentially saying, I'm going to leave the holy, perfect, loving, righteous greatness of Christ that is in me over here. And I'm going to step into this zombie body and I'm going to satisfy this decaying, disgusting, dead flesh. That is gross. I'm not preaching at you. I'm preaching with you because I do it too. I'm not condemning you. I'm saying that's just, that's just like the reality of it. And, and so, and, I, and I'm not saying, hey, if you're sinning by going into the flesh, you're a bad, bad person. That's, if, that's what you're, if you're feeling judged by this, then you're not hearing the gospel that I'm preaching. What I'm trying to tell you is that there is this beautiful life within you over here called Christ that is all yours and if we step into it, which we have in us through Christ, by the power of the Spirit, if we, if we live in that, we will look at the flesh and go, All right, God, let's sit down and let's dismember this flesh, this body, this zombie. Let's dismember one limited time. It's going to take a lifetime. It will never be dead in this life. It will always be there. There will always be some remnant of that flesh operating, trying to kill you. But because we have Christ, we can dismember it one piece at a time until it's so decayed and dead and destroyed and that corruptness is suppressed so well by the powerful working of the Holy Spirit of Christ in you that you are a mature, growing, faithful, God-honoring, Christ-loving, obedient Christian. Not perfect. And who you are in Christ and what Christ has done Is no different in the baby Christian who doesn't even know this. And the mature Christian who is as close to perfection as you can get. There's no difference between those two people. And we shouldn't look at them any differently in our attempts to serve them and love them. But if we're anywhere in the spectrum, our goal is to get closer to Christ. So let's start working on killing the flesh. Let's stop talking in generalities. Now, I also don't mean just, you know, when church is over, make sure you turn to your neighbor and say, hey, here's a list of my sins. I'm this, I'm that, I'm this. Like, chill out. Don't just go spewing out all your drama to everybody. Okay. Handle it wisely. Go to God alone. Talk to him first. But let's be honest about ourselves. If we are living in the resurrected body of the resurrection of Christ, if we're living in the life that Christ has provided through his resurrection, if his appearing has now given us a new appearing, that there's an appearing of Christ within us. Galatians 2.20 is not I who live, but Christ who lives in me in the life I now live. I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I operate like Christ. I'm a robot for Jesus and I am totally comfortable with that concept. And, and if that's who I am, then I have to kill my sin. Because that's what Jesus wants. And so that's what I want. Now Jesus would do it perfectly. I get my flesh in the way of Jesus doing it in me. And that's part of the sanctification. That's part of the process. That's part of the growth. And you're going to need help. So don't do it on your own. Start alone, but with God, and then you're going to need help promise and guess what by God's grace he has given you a family Amen. to help that's what we're here for and and every time I talk about this thing I I get I, I know I'm risking people going mm, too real for me I'm out because that's happened a lot too real for me I'm out And my response to that is, that breaks my heart. Because I love you, but then you're out. Just like in 1 Corinthians 11, if the separating partner leaves you, Paul says, let it be. You can't stop them from going. What are you going to do? Some people just don't like it. And that's fine. That's between them and God. God. We can pray for them and love them in their own way. But I will not be that. And I will not pastor a church that doesn't understand that. And if that means I pastor five people, but the first time I ever got here, I told, I, one of the first sermons I ever preached here, I stood up here and I was new. And when you're new, people are like, oh, there's a new guy there and he's young. I was, I was young back then. Uh, <laughs> and, and, uh, when you, when there's a new young guy, people get excited so they all show up and it was a pretty full crowd in here. And I said, we are going to do, and then I kind of preached very similar to what I just preached, this idea that we're going to work into a sanctification. We're gonna purify this church. That's the whole purpose of the church. If that's not what we're doing, then we're wasting time. Through the gospel, the sovereignty of God and, and for the glory of God and our joy in him, this is what we're gonna do. And so I explained all that and I said, if that means I pastor a church of 10 people, then that means that's God's will for my life, that I pastor a church of 10 people. And God was like, oh, you're gonna say that publicly, Mark? Watch this. And he worked through, worked through. I'm not saying that I was, side note, I'm not saying I'm right in everything. I'm certainly not. I've made plenty of mistakes, okay? And plenty of sins throughout these last few years. But I will just say this, God has put that to the test. And, and I'm telling you, I will not change my tune. The Christian life of sanctification is one of obedience and it's a life where we fight for obedience. And if you can't do it and you've refused to obey, don't bail. Come to us for help. Don't feel judged, feel loved cuz that's what you are. Don't feel stupid, feel <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Maybe we should all feel a little stupid. <laughs> because really, in, 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 in relationship to Christ, we kind of are. And that's why we sin. But yet God has made us beautiful creatures that are do, do amazing things. And by his power and his spirit, we can beat sin. Because he's already killed it. And every time we choose to pick it up, we're just going into the tomb, pulling it back out. And, 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 I, and, and I do it too. And it's hard. Christian life is hard. Any, I had a friend back in Montana and I used to preach to the kids. Man, following Jesus is hard. And he used to stand up and go, I don't think following Jesus is hard. And I was like, uh, good for you. Like, that's insane. How can you say that? It is hard. You're nuts. And I, I just looked at him like, there's no way you're truly following Jesus then because it's not easy. How can we who, have, who are dead to sin still live in it? That does not mean, how are you not perfect yet? That's not what that means. It means let's stop abusing grace by choosing sin. And let's start, because you're going to sin. We know that. That's, it's in a sense, that's okay. It's not okay, but that's okay. You're going to sin. But let's make an ex, a concerted effort at killing the sin that Jesus has already put to death. Let's pray. Lord, we love you, we thank you. We can't do this without you. It's by your grace and your goodness that we are sanctified. Obedience is the product of your righteousness and your resurrection that you've given us. And so in your appearing, we, we want to appear like you. Only by your spirit can you do it and only in your power can that happen. We pray you would in Jesus' name, amen.